and welcome to Words Count, the Writing, Rhetoric, and Digital Studies Department podcast. My name is Justin Carey. I'm a lecturer in the Writing, Rhetoric, and Digital Studies Department at UNC Charlotte, and I'm here today with one of my most esteemed colleagues and dear friend, uh, Deba. So Deba, if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself um, so we know who you are. Thank you so much, Justin. I'm Debaruti Dotto, and I'm a senior lecturer in the same department as Justin. Awesome. Thank you so much. And what brings us together today for this episode of Words Count is to talk about an amazing event uh, that Deba was uh, partly responsible for creating and promoting and implementing on campus a few weeks ago. So the event was called Performing Health, Unmasking Pain, Wellness, Illness, and Disability in the Workplace. And a speaker was brought in, um, uh, Sejal Shah a really prolific uh, fiction and nonfiction writer who has done some really fascinating work around this area. And so I'd love to turn it over to Deba to just sort of share with us the introduction that she crafted, um, that she shared with all of us, and I was in the audience, so I, I, I got to hear it, which was really awesome, um, that she shared with us at this event. So Deba, if you wouldn't mind just kind of starting us off with that, I, I think we would love to hear it. Thank you so much, Justin. So this is part of the excerpt, um, and so I'll begin with my piece. And I just wanted to mention that uh, Sejal's event is part of um, a larger project that aims at creating awareness about hidden and chronic disabilities on campus, and it is funded by the Chancellor's Diversity Challenge Fund. So um, here is the introduction, the framework I used to introduce Sejal's talk. No one is permanently abled. In fact, most of us experience mild to severe forms of disability at some point in our lives. Some of these disabilities are episodic, others are chronic, many remain unseen. Though disability touches all, the logic of being able-bodied and able-minded remains at the center of human society. At work, able-bodiedness is the imagined compulsory. The default position that all bodies and minds abled or otherwise must aspire and bend toward. Now, ongoing disability work has made our workplaces far more inclusive and accessible than ever before. However, and in spite of a fair amount of progress, able-bodiedness and able-mindedness remains a tacit prerequisite for professional access, opportunity, and success. This hidden prerequisite when coupled with the commonplace assumption that disability only exists when it's visible or narrated, poses a new and unique set of challenges for those of us with chronic and invisible illnesses. Thank you. Um, so I really appreciate you starting us off this starting off this discussion with that reading, Deva, because this was as an audience member, as an audience member, someone that was there. Um, I was I was just you. You really situated the whole the whole scene well with that. I was really impressed by the ideas that you sort of led us with going into uh, Sagel's talk and. I just think everything you have in there is so interesting and kind of radical and 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 in some ways new and. You know, it's something that I've thought about, but but never thought about it in this kind of way with this kind of framework. And so it was just really, really awesome. So kind of, I guess, could we talk a little bit about what kind of like sparked your interest in this and kind of how you wrote that and kind of why you said why you were interested in some of these things? Sure. So this has been a long journey. It's both a personal and political journey. My own career began 
um, by looking at the narratives of women. So my early work was deeply shaped by an interest in feminism. And then I'm originally from India, a post-colonial subject. And so I was really interested in decolonial and indigenous paradigms of education. But over a period of time, my own autoimmune illnesses and um, the systemic pushback against something that's invisible made me start thinking about how I move through the university and what stops me at times. And then that also filtered into what I was doing in my own class. I started wondering about what am I not seeing? Yeah. Am I going to see, you know, like what if? So I started thinking about a lot of what ifs. I started thinking about what if the student who comes to class late is late not because he's not um, he cannot manage his time late, but because something keeps him from coming to class on time. What if the student who needs to excuse himself or herself multiple times during the class period to use the restroom right. is yeah. not going there for a phone conversation with something else, you know? Right. I think there's this, there's this narrative in academia and in education generally that you know, uh, students are, are, are doing things that we, that are not true. Like, like there's this narrative of like, oh, they're lazy or they're yes. uninterested Absolutely. or they don't care or whatever that narrative is. Mm -hmm. But that's not, I really don't think that's true. Absolutely. And, you know, in my own personal experience, you know, I, I, it really it really irks me when um, I hear these stories, uh, not, not really so much among colleagues, but just generally out there, these stories of like, oh, um, don't don't believe them when they come come to you with these claims of whatever reason. That, like my my default policy is believe everything they tell me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe maybe yeah. like ra rarely I might get burned on that mm -hmm. once or twice over a couple of years. But it's not worth it to have a blanket policy of like I don't I generally just don't believe you. Right. Um, like I just don't think that that is productive for anyone. And so yeah, and so Sagel's talk really kind of highlighted this for me. This idea that we should trust more in the people around us, right? right? And not in sort of these policies and institutional um, paradigms that, that restrict all of that stuff that is needed. Um, so yeah, I, I, I agree with everything that you just said for sure. Um, yeah, and to be honest, you know, there's so much research on um, new kinds of illnesses like chronic illnesses and how the medical system is geared towards treating acute illnesses, but we do not have a clinical vocabulary for understanding chronic illnesses and because of that and a system that relies exclusively on medical narratives to justify who gets accommodation quote unquote mm -hmm. it really sets back a huge number of students staff and faculty who do not have very coherent medical narratives to offer in support of what they're asking and as you were talking about um Stereotypes abound. Um, we have stereotypes about the super crip, who's mm -hmm. so successful. Think about Stephen Hawking. Mm -hmm. That everybody's held up to that standard. If Stephen Hawking can do it, so can you. Right. And then you have the stereotype of slow Sam, slow Samantha, who doesn't get it, who struggles in class, who's asking for an extension, who comes to class late, who has to miss class. And teachers always fall back. We as teachers fall back on the narrative that this is unfair to other students and that's a stereotype as well that you know if we are offering something to slow Samantha then we are doing um, a, a disfavor right to smart Samantha right you know? yeah that whole that whole framework is so problematic to me this the idea that like 
everything it has to be this like level playing field yeah. concept like nothing mm-hmm. is like that in the world like mm-hmm. nothing is that way mm-hmm. and so um, you have to be flexible and you yeah. have to be able to adapt to the needs of your students and, and the needs of colleagues and faculty as well Absolutely. like and I think that was the part of Sagel's talk that really kind of got to me was like really thinking about the ways that not only we as instructors can can be this for our students, right. but how we can be it for each other Absolutely. in our departments and our programs and, and challenging administration to, to be more aware of this and to, to take steps and, and, and put policies in place to help folks that need it in this way. You get it. And the thing is that we really have to think about how to reorganize and navigate and create new spaces organized from a disability framework. And my argument is that it benefits everybody. And I would like to use the metaphor of the ramp, which is often used a lot in disability studies. The ramp just doesn't benefit the person in a wheelchair. It benefits people carrying loads. It benefits students because those who can use stairs can also use the ramp, but mm-hmm. those who need the ramp cannot use the stairs. Right, mm-hmm. I, that that is such a, a crucial, I think, concept to this whole discussion, this idea of what, what people sometimes perceive as a special exception helping one mm-hmm. is actually a something a global thing that's going to help everyone absolutely and everyone's going to benefit from that absolutely um, i think that we need to focus on that concept mm-hmm. so much more the way that the community can benefit from the, how we help other people um, that's so key and, and yeah, and, and that, that just really, it, it, what that reminded me of and kind of what that made me think of as someone that was in this talk, um, it was really a fascinating experience for me to, to be there to witness this because my, and I, I've spoken with you about this before, mm-hmm. my, my initial gut reaction as I'm sitting there listening to Sajel and I'm, she's sharing her narrative and her experience with me and I'm, I'm you know, just tuned into it, I can feel myself reacting in this way that I do not like. Mm-hmm. And this is why this event was so valuable for me. You know, I identify as a cis straight white man. And there's a lot of privilege that comes with those identities, all of them. Um, And it's something I'm always working on and working to get better about. And my gut reaction, there was a part of my like animal brain that was like, stop complaining Mm. and do your job Mm. and get over it. Mm. And I'm sitting there listening to this amazing talk and I'm, I'm kind of balancing this tension in my head and I'm like mm. thinking like, why, why am I reacting this way? Mm. And it was very much a part of my own uh, privilege frameworks um, and, and, and sort of how I was, I guess, raised or brought up or, mm-hmm. or, or how I see myself in society. Um, this idea of like, just push through it, push through it, like get it done, mm-hmm. you, you know, whatever it mm-hmm. takes, get it done. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was such an honor to be a part of this so that I could have those things come to the surface and have them challenged and and be able to think to myself I I need to get better at this I need to do more Um, and so I I don't know that was something that I took away from this experience thank you so much I'm really glad that you shared with me early on and you're sharing it today Um, thinking about our own positions and how our own positions lock us into ways of responding um, is a good starting place for all of us thinking about the different identities and how they intersect. You talk about being white, being cisgender, being a man, and all of those identities intersect to create a certain person. Uh, I was reading Margaret Price's work this morning and she talks about uh, teaching a critical thinking course. And in her class, she defined critical thinking as 
being able to question being able to identify our own positions and being able to question what we believe in removing that veil of certainty that all of us have around us even if we do not change that moment of expressing uncertainty why do i think the way i do is an excellent starting point something that all of us should aspire towards but going back to your reaction i must admit justin you weren't the only one oh really uh, people had those gut responses yeah. um and they came out in different ways they came up in the surveys they came uh-huh. up in the conversations um that i had with individuals there was one person who walked up to me or i may have walked up to the person and she said but this is a lot of work <laughs> and she was talking from the admin point of view yeah. uh but then that goes back to the idea that working creating a space for a group that has been historically left out involves paperwork absolutely uh but the thing is that what if we were all socialized to think that disability um is part of the diversity of the planet and this will involve work up front but slowly that gets normalized into thinking about this is the variety of the planet this is natural we don't need to fix it with medicine right we need to kind of find a way of incorporating uh, in like including people yeah. um in ways that allow for them to participate fully there were other responses as well people resisted the personal narrative mm yeah um I and so yeah. mhm that was fascinating as well so go ahead tell me what you were thinking oh well my reaction to that was like it was actually quite refreshing to go to a talk that wasn't just an academic mm-hmm. essay that I was yeah. being read to, mm-hmm. about you know with like sources and all this stuff yeah. like I'm used to seeing at conferences mm-hmm. and things it was really nice to to have that lived experience shared uh, to open up in that way yeah. that was a brave thing to do mm-hmm. like to even write this piece it was mm-hmm. extremely brave um and it was amazing to kind of it, it felt I felt very honored and privileged to be to be sharing in that experience it, you know it was almost like a gift like having to take to be brave like that and share that in a public setting It took a lot of courage, right? And so it was awesome. I loved that part of it. Like it was really nice and refreshing not to have to like hear another academic yeah. piece. Mm-hmm. And not, nothing against academic pieces, yeah. whatever fine too. But like it was just it was something different and I really appreciated yeah. that. And it's funny to hear that other people maybe didn't. So, um, not a whole lot of people um survey results have trickled in. And so there were two responses out of the 30 or something that we've received so far. But what's fascinating and I'm so glad you brought it up is how we get socialized to accept certain stories and reject certain stories but how as academics we tend to privilege the academic essay mm-hmm. over the personal narrative so yeah. it's all about language and discourse socialization and that's where this is important for words as well to think about you know the kind of language we use uh, and the buy in for that kind of language the kind of genres that is circulated and what genres get privileged mm-hmm. as acad- as valuable credible academic discourse and if we are rejecting that personal narrative we really have to stop and think what is it that's making us reject that personal narrative and say we would have liked something that's more essayistic that's more researched that's more solution driven as opposed to a person saying this is what i went through as someone with a mental illness that's chronic right and this is how the situation could have been changed but wasn't right like i am i am all for that i think that it's almost like this sense of immersion this sense of uh personal experience is really key i think those things should be valued just as highly as any hours and hours of research that you could do and maybe even more so i mean i think you know you're always going to be one step removed from it if you're just doing research about it right if you're living it if you're experiencing it if you're if you're able to draw conclusions based on those experiences i mean i think that's extremely valuable work and it needs to needs to be valued by our field more. and we were very intentional about the speakers there are remarkable speakers out there who are doing remarkable disability research 
But we wanted the pers um, perspective of someone who has multiple identities. Sejal um, talks about her mental illnesses. She's a person of color, mm -hmm. um, the child of immigrant parents, someone who's not gainfully employed. Mm -hmm. And so all of these identities uh, position her within the university in a very particular kind of way. And we need to be open to those multiple identities and how each of us gets located in particular ways because of the layers and layers of identity that we accrue over a lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think like moving from here, like thinking about work that needs to be done, just like in our own department and our mm -hmm. own in our own every day to day is like thinking about ways to, to highlight these things and to, to have spaces to discuss them. Like, you know, we, we have we come together as a faculty in a few different spots and a few different areas and a few different things throughout the year. Those 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 um, those events typically and, and I suppose appropriately feel kind of, you know, formal and like we need to do work and we need to this is how work gets done and this is how we do it together as a group. But um, I don't know. I think we need to kind of maybe shift that paradigm a little bit too, thinking about how as a community we function and what those communal spaces look like, feel like, what we're sharing there, what we're doing there, what kind of work is getting done. So I don't know, I just, I'm just kind of thinking off the top of my head, but. That's beautiful. We really need to think about how we are constructing these public spaces outside of our class for us to gather. I've often thought about how the default mechanism for us is to go to a meeting. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it's on a in a different building or sometimes off campus, but what if we were to open it up? to give people other ways of participating. Mm -hmm. So for example, with some, um, you know, like um, if there's a person with a chronic illness, with chronic flares, mm -hmm. instead of having to drive somewhere or go to a different building and have to walk, which can destroy a person if they're growing, um, going through a chronic flare at that time uh, and derail the person's um, daily schedule, other, other opportunities we can offer. I was really thinking about my own office hours what if I tell students that you can come and meet me or if you want to make an alternative way of meeting me, here are the options. And leaving yeah. it open like that can allow someone to call me in during my office hours, yeah. can um, do other, you know, like we can do Google Hangouts. So really thinking about access. I was also thinking about spaces in terms of what kinds of food are available. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, departmental retreats. Do we have to drive? Can everyone drive to that venue? Yes. Can anyone, everyone leave their family and their care providers? If you have a chronic illness, you may have a care provider at home who helps you manage your daily life. Yes. You may need access to a hospital. How do we build this into the planning that we do for meetings and retreats and things like that? You know, it's so it's so fascinating hearing you talk about this. It makes me think of like... So I have a five-year-old, right? And that's mm -hmm. often a thing that I that is acceptable in society, in communities, as a thing that's like, oh, I'm going to be late. Oh, I can't make this thing. I have a kid I have to pick up from school. Mm -hmm. Oh, I understand, right? Mm -hmm. But if you were to substitute the kid picking up from school with like a, a chronic illness or a hidden disability, mm -hmm. it would not go over that well. They might be like, okay, whatever. But like... Most of the time, I feel like the reaction might be, "Oh, well, what? Like that's that's ridiculous." Like, or you're not professional. Right, right, right. right. Mm -hmm. So, like, there's definitely this double standard that mm -hmm. needs to be worked on and addressed, and that's why this talk was so key. And I'm glad I saw a lot of administrators, a few administrators, and, and sort of you know higher up people in the meeting, and that was good. I'm glad those folks were there. Um, to sort of get a sense of. Mm -hmm. What, what this is and what it means. And, and I think it's really important work
to do. And it's interesting you mentioned Margaret Price a little earlier. Um, I was had the privilege to get to meet her a little bit a couple of years ago at, at Ohio State and work with her a little, and it was amazing. She was brilliant. And it was really cool to hear Sagel talk about her and how influential Margaret Price's work was mm-hmm. for Sagel um, because, yeah, Margaret Price was, was amazing. Um, and so I just wanted to mention that because she's really cool. Um, and in addition, the other reason I wanted to mention it was because we've, we've mentioned a few people and, and, and resources, and we'll add all that stuff mm-hmm. um, in, the, in this podcast at the bottom. You can go down and scroll down. You'll find links to, to Margaret Price, to Sagel's work, to her website. Um, if you're interested, if you want to check it out, Sagel has a website. Um, it's Sagel, so S-E-J-A-L dash Shah is her last name, S-H-A-H. So S-E-J-A-L dash S-H-A-H dot com. Um, it's Sagel's personal website um, called This Is One Way to Dance. Um, and it's got all of her writings, links to her work, her biography. Um, you can read all about her there. And I just, uh, before we kind of maybe wrap it up here, Debbie, was there anything else you wanted to highlight before we get to the end? I would love to read out from the conclusion of um, the speech. Um, that would be, I was hoping you would say that. That would be amazing. I would love to hear that. Thank you so much. Take it away. Thank you so much. We have work to do here. We have to learn to unlearn the various ableist assumptions that shape our work cultures and disallow those with hidden disabilities to participate fully. In the words of disability scholar Margaret Price, we have to create a culture of access, not a culture of accommodation. We have to learn to wonder. We have to wonder what happens when disability is viewed not as a fall from able body mindedness but as an essential part of the diversity of this planet? What happens to our workspaces when the disabled are not merely welcome, but also expected? What happens when we begin to see, symbolically that is, chronic and invisible illnesses and disabilities? Disability work must never be an afterthought, a retrofit to accommodate a single person, but only after arrival. Needless to add, this is not easy work. Neither can this be done only through discrete events and programs like this one or through mere policy work. This kind of work requires deep shifts in our work culture, in our perceptions of what counts as excellence and who is viewed as the able or strong worker. It requires that we begin to explore and even explode the bedrock of ableist assumptions, biases and filters that form the very foundation of our institutions. There is no single formula or approach to respond to the experiences of the chronically ill in the workplace. Because disability work looks different in different spaces, we invite you to partner with your peers and colleagues to see how you can enact change in your own communities by adopting a disability mindset, a way of thinking oriented towards the needs of those with chronic and invisible illnesses. This work may start with a conversation about how to make meeting times and locations more accessible to all. It may involve giving someone an option to meet with you in person, online, or at a mutually accessible location. It may start by looking at your program's work from home policy. It may involve insisting on an allergen-free menu for your next business event and doing the same over and over and over again till these menus become commonplace. It may mean rethinking attendance, participation, and extension policies within your own classrooms and departments. The list of possibilities are endless, but a few things remain evident. Each one of us has work to do, a lot more work to do. Thank you, Justin. Of course, Deva. Thank you so much for sharing that, for putting on this amazing event. Um, 
partnering with the library, doing all of it. Amazing work. So impressed. So grateful to have been a part of it. Um, for all of you listening, you know, check out the words department on UNC Charlotte's website if you want to learn more about us. Um, we'll put all the links, info, resources, and everything else in the description below. And um, I just want to personally and especially thank my special guest today, Deba, for being here uh, to discuss this with us. So thank you, Deba, so much for, for coming out for the podcast today. Thank you so much for inviting me, Justin. This was a pleasure. Of course. it was The pleasure was all mine. And thanks for listening. We'll see you on the next episode of Words Count. For now, I'm Justin Carey from the Writing, Rhetoric, and Digital Studies Department here at UNC Charlotte saying have a great day.